Let's dive in this morning uh, to our first Sunday message uh, in, in the first Sunday of Advent. So there's probably a little bit of background required in order to even set the stage for what Advent is. Advent uh, is a word that essentially just means coming or arrival. You've probably heard of the Advent season, and so sometimes that word seems like it exists sort of as its own thing. But the word Advent that we're celebrating during the Christmas season means the arrival or coming, and, and in particular, what we're celebrating during Advent, and by the way, that runs for the four Sundays prior to Christmas. So every year, Advent starts four Sundays before Christmas. This year's a little funny uh, because some people, for instance, uh, they'll have like an Advent wreath with different candles representing each of the four emphases during Advent. Uh, and then you light the fifth candle, which is the Christmas Eve candle on Christmas Eve. This year, you'd actually be lighting two of those, right? You'd be lighting the love candle and the Christmas Eve candle at the same time. I don't wanna get in the weeds on that. But because the four, four Sundays up until Christmas include Christmas Eve, it's a little different than most years. But basically the church around the world and throughout history has celebrated this time as a time to re slow down and to reflect, to be contemplative about the arrival of Christ in four particular categories. So this morning, for instance, our emphasis is on the arrival of hope in Jesus, what that means, that he comes and brings hope. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about peace. The third week of Advent, uh, historically, people talk about joy. We'll be talking about joy. And then on that fourth Sunday before Christmas, uh, we talk about love. So uh, hope, peace, joy, and love tend to be the emphasis. Some churches change that up and they shake it up. There are traditional Advent readings that you can do. Uh, there are traditional Advent hymns that you can sing. There, there's all kinds of things that go into it. The main thing for us is to have a season of preparation in reflection both on the arrival of Christ in his first incarnation, right? When Jesus comes and is born as a baby in Bethlehem. But Advent isn't just remembering the Advent or remembering arrival. Advent also works functionally to expect or to anticipate the second advent or the second coming of Christ. So we sit in this middle space right now between Christmas when Jesus first arrived and his second coming when he will arrive again and we live in a season in the middle wherein the Holy Spirit indwells us. So what we're celebrating is the arrival of Christ originally in the incarnation, the arrival of Christ currently in our lives and we're anticipating the return of Christ which he promised. We do so in hope and in peace and in joy and in love. This morning, specifically, we're looking at the, the process of thinking through hope. And hope is an interesting one, especially when you think about Christmas, because you can think like, oh, when we're celebrating the Christmas season or the season of Advent, we're thinking about hope. Uh, that's an easy one because all the kids everywhere, they're all hoping to get what they want for Christmas, right? Everybody has like a list of things they want. If you're like me growing up, you fill out the... You know, the cat, we used to have catalogs. That's before the internet existed, but there were catalogs. You'd circle the thing you wanted your grandma and grandpa to get you, and you'd have this hope that you would get the things you told your grandparents that you wanted, right? That those things would arrive on Christmas Day. But biblically speaking, the idea of hope is not the idea of a wish. It's not the idea of a, uh, of a thing that you want. The idea of biblical hope, the way it's represented in the Old and New Testament, has more to do with the idea of a confident expectation. A confident expectation is what we're celebrating. Confident expectation that God is who he says he is, that God did what he said he did, that God 
will do what he has promised to do. As we enter into this season of contemplation and reflection, what we're celebrating, and especially this morning as we talk about hope, is the fact that we believe Jesus is really who the Bible says he is. That we believe he will do what he has promised to do, and that belief or that confident expectation in who God is and what he has said, it reshapes and changes the way we live in our regular lives. Uh, one quick story from my own life. When I was little, we always went to Albuquerque for Christmas. That's where my grandparents lived. And like I said, I would make a list of things that I wanted from my grandparents and my parents. When we got to my grandma's house in Albuquerque, her Christmas tree was in her living room and it would all, there were just like so many presents. The presents would cover wall to wall behind the Christmas tree. And that was because it was for our family and their friends and my cousins and you know, there were all these people. But you'd walk into my grandmother's house and there were so many presents and you just felt this hope, right? Wrong kind of hope, but you felt this hope like the thing I asked for is in there somewhere. Now, our family tradition was that we opened Christmas presents with my grandparents on Christmas Eve, on the 24th. We would go to a little church service, and then we'd come back from the, from the Christmas Eve service, and we would open our presents. But my cousins and I realized really early that if we were, if we were crafty, and if we were careful about it, we could actually convince my grandfather, his name was Pete, we could convince him to actually let us open one present on the 23rd, a full day before we're gonna open presents as, uh, as a family. So my cousins and I would talk about our approach, we'd talk about our strategy, we'd plot and plan, we'd go to my grandfather on the 23rd the morning, and we say, Grandpa, we really wanna to talk to you about something important. Now, I don't know, it never was a surprise to him because we did this every year, right? But Grandpa, we got something important we wanna to talk to you about. There's so many presents, it's gonna take so much time to open them. Like, it would just be, it would make more sense for us to start a little bit early, so our thought was maybe we could open some presents early like tonight. And grandpa always said no, always. It was always a no at first, right? In the morning, it's always a no. I didn't notice the pattern here until years later, by the way, but we would chip away at him. We'd say, grandpa, you know, what's the harm? It can't hurt anything. We really want this. Like, you, you love us, right? You know, you, we'd really want, the, like, don't you care? We'd work at work, and he'd soften up during the course of the day, get a little softer and more malleable as the day went on. And inevitably, you guys, by the time we got to about dinner, he would, not in front of our parents, but to us, me and my cousins, my brother, he would say, oh, okay, all right, here's the deal. I'll make you a, a deal. I'll let you open one present each, but I get to pick it. And we were like, that's fine. I mean, that feels like a decent compromise, right? We're getting to open a present. That feels fantastic. He's saying yes. He had already said no. Now he says yes. Uh, yeah, okay, fine. You get to pick. And then we were just sort of hoping that he would pick the one that we were looking at with our eyes, you know? So we get to the night of the 23rd. My grandpa goes into the living room. He very uh, dip diplomatically says to my parents, like, I know this isn't what we normally do, although it was exactly what we normally did. He's like, but I've decided to let the kids open up one present, uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them do this. And then he would pick something. And I will tell you, inevitably, you know, I'm, and we're like, we want him so desperately to pick the present that sounds like the right thing when you shake it. Inevitably, every year, my whole childhood, my grandfather always picked something stupid. <laughs> always. He always picked a present and you'd be like, come on, come on, you know, like let it be something good. And you'd open up and it'd be like a sweater vest or like a jacket with patches on the elbows or socks or something stupid, right? Something dumb, pajamas or something we didn't want. And always there was this sense of like hope that it was going to go a certain way and then this real disappointment that it didn't go the way we wanted to. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that whole thing was a scam, right? <laughs> 
That was all like a, we were in like a charade with my grandfather. He knew what the crappy presents were. And when he told us no at the beginning of the day, he was planning to pick those dumb socks at the end of the day. And he knew we wouldn't like it, right? So I'm telling you this story to illustrate two, two different kinds of hope. In that story, one kind of hope is the hope of little children who really want to be able to open the present with the thing they've asked for, right? The other kind of hope that exists in that story is our hope in my grandfather, who was a deceiver. <laughs> right? I put some hope, not, not in what I would get, but in who someone was. And it turns out, now that I'm reflecting upon it, he wasn't exactly who I thought he was. So uh, that's between me and him. He's in heaven. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but there's different kinds of hope. When we talk about the hope that is found in the arrival of Christ, we aren't talking about, hey, you should have hope that God is gonna do the things you tell him to do or that everything's gonna work out the way you want it to work. He's not a genie that just fulfills wishes, but there is hope for us. One of the places we'll start this morning is in Isaiah chapter 64. Interestingly, in the Book of Common Prayer and with the sort of broader church calendar, this is one of the texts in the lectionary for this morning. Isaiah 64 is part of a larger uh, prophecy of lament, a prayer of lament, and uh, Robin read it earlier. But what we hear here is the expectation, the confident expectation, the desire, the longing for God to break into their world. The people of Israel had been promised a Messiah. They had been promised that God would bless both them and, and all people through Abraham. And yet the people in the first century were looking around at their own lives and looking around at their world, right? Not just in the, that's when Jesus came, but when the, when the prophecy of Isaiah was coming, the people could look around at the world and see how desperately they needed a Messiah, right? Years before Jesus would actually come, there was this anticipation and this expectation that God was who he says he was and that he would do what he had promised to do. And they felt it in their guts. They wanted God to change their world, to change their situation, to rescue and redeem them. We hear that even from the first verse of Isaiah 64. It says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Right? Can you hear the desperation in that? God, would you please just rip open the sky and come here. Be in this with us. Right? We wish that you would do something, that you would break into our world. Now, what we're celebrating with the incarnation, we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating God's breaking into our world, that he came and dwelt among us as a man, that God comes in bodily form in the person of Christ. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. They are crying out for this. God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. We want you to break into our, into our mess. We want you to break into our situation and we want your breaking in to have a ripple effect, right? We want there to be consequences to that. We see our enemies. We see our oppressors. We see the people on the horizon who are coming to get us. And God, we want you to break in and we want things to change like water does when it's brought to a boil. They say, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down the mountain and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. They're like, we know who you are. We know what you've done. We've seen in the past that you were a God who doesn't leave us alone. We, we know the kind of God we serve. There are no other gods like this, they say. You are a God who comes to the rescue of the people that are looking for him, the people that are waiting for him. 
We know who you are. We know what you've said. We long for you to break in. We have this confident expectation that you will do what you say you will do. It says in verse five, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time and shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Not only do they have a view to the brokenness in their world, an external view that can assess their enemies and the agitators and the people who are against God, but I want you to see that their view and their hope also encompasses a need for transformation within them. It's not purely an external view. They're not just saying, God, we want you to break in and take care of your enemies, take care of our enemies. They're also saying, God, we need you to break in because we ourselves are broken. We ourselves have blown it. We ourselves are stumbling here. We need you to break in and transform the whole thing, what is external to us and what is internal to us. Verse eight, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. That's the reading for this morning. As we talk about the arrival of hope, what we see is that the people of God were hungry. There was this anticipation for God to rend the heavens and break in, both for the sake of dealing with the brokenness they saw in the world around them and dealing with the brokenness they saw within themselves. There is a humility to their hunger for God to change their situation and to change their world. And that humility is such that they can say, we can't do this on our own. We're just the clay. You're the one that's gonna have to do the work. Remember us, for we're your people. Don't forget about us, right? That is what it looks like to hope in the promise of God, in the person of God. They're articulating truth about who they know he is, truth about who they know he's been in the past, and truth about who they expect and anticipate he will be in the days ahead. And what they're essentially asking for is for him to come to them, to come into their situation, which is exactly what the incarnation is. They're asking for him to redeem what is broken in that situation, right? And they're hungry for him to restore the gospel message is essentially, at its heart, a message of incarnation, God entering in, the story of God redeeming all things through his death and resurrection, the person of Jesus, and the story of God restoring all things, that he restores our relationship with him, that he restores all that is broken in creation, that he restores all that is broken in community. The story of atonement and of redemption and restoration is the whole story, and it's what the people are hungry for because God had promised them that he would send them a savior. Isaiah 42 is just one of several passages where we hear a glimpse of what God had promised. Isaiah 42, one through four says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What we see in Isaiah 64 is that the people were hungry for the very thing that God had promised he would give them and they were crying out to him. I wonder for us this morning, if you feel any solidarity with the people of ancient Israel or the people of first century Israel in their hunger for a Messiah, when they looked at their world, what they saw was injustice and what they saw was violence and what they saw was hatred and selfishness and suffering. 
They longed for restoration and redemption. I wonder if you can relate to that. I think we live in a world where it's fairly difficult to look around and not feel a little hopeless, right? Whether you're the kind of person who watches the news or you spend a lot of time scrolling through social media, if you just have conversations with your coworkers, it's kind of inevitable at this point that you'll have injustice put in front of your face, that you'll see violence put in front of your face, that you will see all kinds of selfishness and greed and pride and brokenness. It rears its head all the time. And if you're paying any kind of attention, I would guess that you have felt a little bit of hopelessness. And that hopelessness comes because we feel so incapable of changing what is broken. I'm a finite guy and I can see things that are broken but I can't fix them all and sometimes I don't even see all the things that are broken. The people of God were anxious for the Messiah to come. They were anxious for God to rend the heavens and break in and I, and I think we can feel it. I think we feel what that's like. There are lots of things we would like God to set straight in our world but I wanna point you again to the fact that the view in Isaiah 64 is not purely an external view. You see, I think a mistake that evangelicals make or that Christians make, especially in our current age, is that we tend to be very outward focused in our critique of the brokenness of the world and by that we mean everybody but us, right? We tend to look outside ourselves and we say, well, this is broken and that's broken, but, but you know, we've got it all figured out. And that, that gaze that longs for restoration, that longs for incarnation, that gaze that longs for redemption, it doesn't include our own brokenness the way they do in Isaiah 64. I hear a lot of Christians who are so preoccupied with the brokenness they see outside of themselves that they fail to recognize how desperately I myself need a redeemer. How desperately we as a community need a redeemer. How desperately my family, and there I'm talking about me and my wife and our four kids, how desperately we need redemption, right? It can be very easy to lift up your eyes and see all of the brokenness you see around the world and to live a life of reaction to that brokenness, a life of fear to that brokenness. And all of that comes from a place of putting your hope in the wrong things and failing to recognize in your gaze your inclusivity in the brokenness of the world. We are a part of why a redeemer is necessary, of why a restorer is necessary. I love the fact that God comes into this mess. They saw the mess but what they saw was not purely external. They could see their own brokenness. They could feel hopeless about the world, certainly. But they seem in Isaiah 46, excuse me, 64, to be even more concerned about the brokenness in themselves. And it is into this mess that Jesus arrives in the incarnation at Christmas. He comes into that situation. Now again, what we're celebrating is not just that Jesus comes into that situation originally at Christmas, but that we believe he will come again and that he will redeem and restore, that he'll finish this work, right? But Jesus comes into a feeling of brokenness. There's a, there's a, a Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, it's one of the good ones, right? Uh, <clears throat> as opposed to, if you're wondering, as opposed to Good King Wenceslas, which is a bad Christmas song. <laughs> I'll just go on record as saying, what, I don't like that one, so it doesn't matter. Uh, what is, I don't even know what the Feast of Stephen is. You, I'm sure one of you will write me an email about that. Um, <clears throat> the uh, O Holy Night says at the beginning, in the first verse I think, it says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. This is the situation in which it finds itself. Brokenness, confusion, mistaken about things, misunderstanding, right? Confident in things they're wrong about, whatever. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared 
and the soul felt its worth. I like the way the, the hymn writer here juxtaposes these things. He talks about the brokenness of the world, but at the arrival of the anointed one, at the arrival of Lord Jesus, you know what happens? The soul, that's an individual thing. The soul feels a longing for restoration, a value because Jesus would come to rescue us and redeem us, right? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Then what? A thrill of hope. That's what we're talking about this morning. Hope that is thrilling. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. As Jesus arrives, that hope dawns in our world and the brokenness that mankind had rested in the brokenness they felt in their own souls was spoken to in the arrival of Christ we were rescued we were given the opportunity for redemption and restoration Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 say that God sent Jesus at exactly the right time it says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, sir, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. At just the right time, God sends his son. That's the incarnation. He enters into the mess. God sends his son to redeem those of us who were under the law. There's that redemptive part of the gospel. And then he establishes the fact that we have been restored to full adoption as daughters and sons. The gospel is what we are celebrating at Christmas. That Jesus speaks to the hopelessness in people with incarnation, with redemption, and with restoration. There are four key things about this kind of hope that I want you to see just quickly as we finish. The first thing about the hope we're talking about, this hope that isn't a wish and it's not a want, but it's a confident expectation in who God is and what he said. First thing I want you to remember, and this may be redundant for some of you, but the first thing I want you to remember is that this hope we're talking about is a hope that is secure. It's a hope that's secure. And I want to juxtapose that with every other kind of hope. Because if you've put your hope in your grandpa, your grandpa's going to fail you at some point, right? If you've put your hope in your own efforts to persuade people to do what you want them to do, you're going to blow that too. If you've put your hope in your money, in your bank account, there are times where your bank's going to fall or the stocks that you've invested in aren't going to be worth as much anymore. If you put your hope in your power, there are times where the rug will be pulled out from underneath your power. If you put your hope in relationships, relationships are all by their very nature broken. It doesn't matter what human institution you have put your hope in, it is flawed and frail because it is rooted in humanity which is broken. We studied Ecclesiastes earlier this year and the message we heard again and again and again and again is everything ends up in the dump and the graveyard, right? So if you've put your hope, if you've put your confident expectation in your stuff or in your power or in other human beings, you will be disappointed because you're riding in a leaky boat, right? What is the hope that we have in Christ? It is a secure hope. Because he keeps his word. Because he can't even break his word if he wanted to, and he doesn't. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope he set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 similarly says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If you're feeling hopelessness this morning, it's possible that the hopelessness you're feeling is because you put your hope in political leaders or you put your hope in a human government or you put your hope in financial things, whatever. There are all kinds of verses in the Bible that say, don't put your hope in worthless idols because you make those things. They don't have any life in them. Don't put your hope in finances. All of those things, right? The Bible affirms there is one place for secure hope and it's only in Jesus because he cannot and will not fail. He is who he said he is and he will do what he said he will do. Now, the second thing I want to emphasize in the course of our Christmas celebration and our Advent celebration here, the arrival of hope is not only inviting us to put our faith in a secure hope, but also in a living hope, in a living hope. First Peter chapter one, verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has given us this living hope that he guards and protects, that he preserves and he empowers. But what this verse is also pointing us to, listen to this next part. He talks about this living hope, and then he says this in verse six. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's it saying? It's saying this hope we have is living and the difference that makes is that it isn't dependent upon your situation. It's not dependent upon your circumstance. You see, again, if your hope is in some earthly thing or some man-made thing, temporal circumstances will be brought to bear on that. You're going through a difficult time. Well, if your hope was in feeling good or your hope was in being healthy or your hope was in being able always to pay your bills, then in those moments that you can't do those things, then your hope goes away. The difference with Jesus is that we're not putting our hope in an idea. We're not putting our hope in an institution. We're not putting our hope in a doctrine. We're putting our hope in a person who died and was raised again and is alive and is present with us. This living hope means, because our hope is in a person, that I can walk into different circumstances and some of those will be fun and some of them will be crummy. I can walk into different scenarios. I can be in different stages of my life, in different phases. I can be in different countries, in different states, in different cities. I can have different vocations and different relationships. And my hope doesn't change because my hope isn't based on where my feet are planted. My hope is based in a living king of the universe, the Lord Jesus. So it's secure and it's living, which means there is hope in every circumstance because your hope is in Jesus who's with you not in some particular room or some particular time or some particular place. Thirdly, not only is our hope secure, not only is our hope living, but our hope is humble. And I've already talked about this a little, so I won't, I won't hammer it too hard. But in Psalm 80, one of the other lectionary passages for this morning, um, listen to this psalm. It says this in verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. 
Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 17, it says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. I want you just to see again that the hope they have is not an arrogant hope. It's not a a hope that involves destruction for their enemies and the wiping out of the people with whom they disagree. The hope they have is for God to do transformative work within them. And the hope they have is wrapped and bound with their own recognition of their own fallenness and their own brokenness. There is a humility that comes in saying, not just that the world needs a redeemer, not just that our country needs a redeemer, not just that my family needs a redeemer, but this guy, this guy needs Jesus to rend open the heavens and break in. There is hope necessary in all of that. So, so what we're talking about is a hope that's secure. It's a hope that's living. And it's a hope that is humble in its approach. Come to us, redeem us, restore us. We don't want to be so preoccupied with the brokenness outside of us that we fail to see the need for our own transformation. And then lastly and finally, this is a hope that is active. It's secure and living and humble and finally active. And what I mean by that is this. You could sit in a message like this one and you could go, oh, it's the Christmas season. The first Sunday of Advent is about hope. I just need to be a hopeful person. I need to trust that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. And it can sort of feel like a thing you just need to agree to intellectually, right? Like, oh, I'm supposed to be hopeful. I, I Trust me, that will not work in the real world. <laughs> it won't work. You just like, try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a hopeful person, good luck. No, this is a hope that is active. What that means is that it's a hope that provokes us to movement. It provokes us to spiritual discipline. It provokes us to sacrifice. It provokes us to sharing uh, and revealing Christ with other people. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus will come again, right? Jesus will come again. And there will be a time of justice, and judgment, right? And then he says this in verse 11. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, right? Based on what you know or based on the hope you have that Jesus came and will come again, don't you think, he's saying, don't you think you ought to live differently? Don't you think there's a different action? There's a different sort of way to walk this out? It isn't enough to simply say, I know that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. If you believe those things, it changes the way you interact with your world. It's an active hope that transforms the way we live. Finally, here in Romans chapter 15, and I'll finish with this, there's this beautiful verse that talks about hope. It says in Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I want to reemphasize one more time. Yes, this Christmas season, we got all kinds of things to hope in because our God is who he says he is and he will do what he said he will do. He has come in the incarnation, he has offered us redemption, and he will restore all things. And there's the gospel, right? But I also want to be clear that when we're talking about a hope that is living and a hope that is active and a hope that is humble and a hope that is secure, I'm not really at the heart of it talking about hope that you need to go and do, 
right? This isn't a message where you like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. This is a thing that God does in you. What Romans 15 says is that God, by his power, will make you a person of joy and peace as his Holy Spirit produces joy in you. So the posture for us, if you're feeling hopeless this morning as we enter into the Christmas season for any number of reasons, maybe for things that are happening external to you or things that are happening internal to you, if you're feeling that hopelessness, the good news is there is one place to go for hope. It only arrives from one source and that is from God in Christ. And this is something he wants for you. I think around Christmas time, we're always thinking about what people want from us, like what are the gifts they want us to give them. I don't want you to think about what God wants from you, but will you think for a second about what God wants for you? What God wants for you is for you to have a secure and active and humble and living hope by the power of his Holy Spirit that will fill you with joy and peace in whatever circumstance you find yourself. That is what we're celebrating as we walk into the Christmas season. A hope that isn't a wish and it's not a want. It's a hope in a who. It's a hope in a person. The Lord Jesus and what he has said and who he is and what he will do. Will you pray with me as we close? God, I thank you for your word and I pray that you would help us to be people who feel entirely dependent upon the power of your spirit for our hope. We thank you that your hope came in the midst of the mess that you entered in, that you brought redemption and restoration. We thank you that that you are still with us even now in whatever circumstance we find ourselves because our hope is in someone who is alive. We thank you, God, that you will come again and that you will restore all things and that we have the ability to live a life of hope or of confident expectation because you are a God who keeps his promises and you are a God who has revealed himself to us as one who is faithful and who desires restoration and redemption even more than we do. Help us to see you clearly and to walk in the hope that only you give. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.